as the crow flies on the Vance Crow Podcast. All right. The outlaw Joseph Ring. Welcome to the podcast. Okay, I don't know why I'm the outlaw. Like, <laughs> we talked about this earlier today. I don't feel like I do that many more illegal things than most people. <laughs> I think you're one of the only people I know that, that you know, once you hit a certain age, once you get in your mid-30s, suddenly the adventuring that you used to do and that most of your friends were in the process of doing kind of goes away. And I met you and Michael, and um, all of a sudden when coronavirus hit, you guys went into like supercharge mode and you're driving up to go get freezers and you're figuring things out. You guys were just running around and there were no rules. And I don't think of it as outlaws in like, we need to arrest you and send you to jail. I just mean it as like guys that are out adventuring. Yeah, we definitely do that. A day, well, I had a kid ride along the other day and we got like halfway through what he was supposed to come along for and our plans kind of pivoted and then we got to the end of the day and he's like, is this like your day every day? Like, like, I don't know, just all this stuff that goes on. And I was like, I mean, it mostly went according to plan, but kind of, yeah. He was like, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I think there's some element to, uh, to that with farming and livestock in general, just that there's never going to be a day where the page is just straight and clean because animals don't behave the way that you want them to. They behave the way they want to. <laughs> yeah, I saw this job app for a ranch the other day that was like, have the ability to make good plans and, and keep things on track. And the next line item was also consider that sometimes making plans doesn't matter. <laughs> so you are Joseph Ring, uh, one half of the Ring Brothers that supplied me with uh, Ring Brothers beef. You guys have been running around, you raise cattle, you live in Northern Illinois, and you're one of the most interesting characters I've ever met. So this has been a long time coming, but I never really knew how to, how to do this interview because you guys are weird characters. <laughs> I get that a lot. Um, yeah, I was kind of surprised by that comment uh, over the weekend that you were like, I don't know how to do this. And you said you wanted to include Dan, but you weren't sure how to do that either. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, so I guess I should kind of talk a little bit about myself. I'm Joseph Ring. I farm with my family in Northern Illinois. Um, my day job, I guess, is uh, handling some of the operations for our indoor cattle feedlot. We custom feed cattle for other people, so they send them to us and we take care of them until they go to market. Um, and I do that with my brother along with the rest of my family. Um, I grew up with my aunt and uncle and extended family and cousins and stuff because um, uh, we lost our parents when we were younger. But um, I think we've become very independent, autonomous people. Um, <laughs> you and your brother, you mean? Yeah, more so because of that, probably. How um, old were you when your parents passed away? Uh, seven and nine, unrelated incidents. Yep. So... Um, so that's been quite a while ago. I'm 25 now and, uh, yeah, we just kind of roll with the punches and try to keep things going. And at the beginning of coronavirus, uh, Vance was like, man, you guys should like fill this gap because people aren't finding beef in the store. And we were like, all right. 
Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to be like, you know, you come into situations and people are like, oh, somebody ought to do this, right? And you throw out ideas and people kind of play around with it. But one of the things about my like whale pod, the people I spend time with, if you throw out an idea and there is a plausible way for them to make it happen, they do. And you and Michael were right in there with all the other people, the Kate Crosby's, the Dwayne Favors, Jared McDaniels of like, hey, I see an opportunity, I'm gonna go for it. And I mean, the craziest thing was the amount that I would have gone for it, I probably would have gone till 9.30, 10, 10.30, 11, working hard. You guys work till like two in the morning, running around, driving around, doing stuff. And you always have this spirit of like, that's just what I'm doing next. Yeah, I don't think that's like exclusive to us in ag though. Like, and, and not even other professions. I'm, I know plenty of people that work awful hard um, doing other stuff. I, I think sometimes we just run odd hours because it's what works for us. Um, but like, like we'll have to be applying liquid manure in the winter and it, we'll have to run um, when it's a little colder so the, the ground is a little more dense so we can get it knifed in but not get stuck. Um, and, and that's just, you, you just do it at night because during the day it doesn't work. Um, so it's just kind of rolling with, with what you got. Um, but yeah, on the, the beef deal, we did, um, throw together a few things and we were able to market like half of our home raised calf crop over the last three months that way. What does and that mean? Half of your uh, home raised calf crop? So we raised, oh, like 80 calves. And then we kept some replacements back and sold a few lightweights last fall. But the ones that we took all the way to finish, we um, we were able to market about half of those directly to consumer um, and have them processed at, at custom processors and then have them pick up there. So it was basically just legwork on connecting people and meat. I mean, I think the craziest thing about it is you guys made it seem so natural, but like I was telling my family and the other people, I mean, I, I, people really love your Ring Brothers beef when I give it out. And it's, it was kind of like your private label. It was the, the calves, the, the cattle that you guys have been raising on your own. How long have you and Michael had your own little separate herd? Um, I think we're going on year four or five that we've kind of done it on our own. But I mean, we, we got our first cows. I think grandpa bought us each a cow when we were six, I want to say. And we'd just like go out there every day in the summer and scrape up some hay in the hay shed that was out of a busted bale or something and <laughs> take it out in our wagon literally and dump it out there for them to eat. Like it, I, I've always been around it. So I don't know. I, we we're also, um, extroverts in some ways so like the making the connections and talking to people like while you're waiting for a truck to load you answer some facebook messages that wasn't like it didn't seem out of the ordinary i guess i i don't know how do people respond when in the middle of coronavirus you guys had beef available like crazy it was pretty easy to move at first it slowed down a little eventually we did pay for a little bit of facebook advertising but like we've pretty much everything we've been able to get processed we have gotten sold pretty quick so have you learned a lot about like i mean i i know that you've learned a lot about butchering because 
when you first you when you and I were first working it out it was like how much how much room in your freezer does a quarter take up like what does a half take up and these are things that like you you guys knew intuitively the different chops or the different cuts and I was just like can't I just order half a cow and have it show up you're like well you got to make these other decisions what else did you learn about the difference between what you guys knew about cattle and slaughtering versus what the general public knew um a lot about aging um that's probably the thing we've talked about the most because like if you buy stuff in the store it's not going to be aged whereas ours gets butchered and then it'll hang in a whole or well half or quarter carcass for 14 to 17 days typically if we go through our local processor um and and then it's cut up and that just breaks down the connective tissue and there's this whole process with enzymes and stuff and i'm not going to get into that but um, changes the flavor profile and tenderness and and it's just a lot better eating experience when you dry age it for a certain period of time so that's that's probably the main thing and then uh, talking about the possibilities of the different ways you can cut it that was um, we've gotten a little bit better on how to convey that but still have some learning to do yeah and so are you guys going to keep going with this are you planning on continuing the route of retail sales to to friends yeah yeah, we're going to keep going with it. Um, we've been looking a lot into getting certified to do some ourselves because um, with all the hogs during coronavirus that couldn't get processed because processors were shut down, we took, um, we went to some neighbors and purchased some off hogs for not very much because they were just trying to get rid of them to not have to euthanize them and actually butchered them ourselves and just kind of split it up between the friend group that we did it with and learned a lot that way too. Um, so we've been listening. So it was just a group of guys around in your garage slaughtering <laughs> pigs? So my dad built kind of a butcher shop with a walk-in cooler and grinders and all that um, back while well, he was still alive, obviously like 20 years ago or whatever, I guess it'd be 25 years ago. He built it now, but yeah, we literally got a group of neighborhood guys together that do deer. And um, my brother's father-in-law used to work at a locker and he came and showed us how to do a lot of it. And we've done a fair amount of them since then and got into like making brats and, and all that kind of stuff too out of that. So that's been a great learning experience and it's been a lot of fun to to do that with everybody. So. Yeah, I think that's exactly what I'm talking about. Like, it's one thing to do that with a group of friends once where you're like, oh, somebody ought to slaughter those pigs because there's extra pigs that are being euthanized. But then you get into it and you're like, man, this is a mess. And man, you have to clean up. And once you start, you can't stop for hours and hours and hours. And then you've got these problems that are going to come up that you can't predict and you got to deal with. And then you guys are like, okay, well, we did it that time, but now we're going to do it next week. And then we're going to figure out a way to do it again. And I think that's one of those things that um, as I get older, it is super healthy for me to be around people that don't run into problems and say, ah, you know what, I don't have to mess around with this, so I'm not going to. And instead are like, no, we're going to figure this out because we're trying to transcend. We're trying to get somewhere else. Yeah, I don't like there's not very many things that we run into that we just throw up our hands at. Like you might take a break, but whether it's mechanical or stuff like that, we, you usually can find somebody or just work through the problem and, and figure it out. And Michael's pretty good at that, especially on the mechanical side. Like that's what he went to school for, diesel power, tower, power technology. Um, so when, when we get into 
some of the mechanics of that whole process. He uh, fabbed up some different stuff that made it go quicker and it was a lot easier on some backs. Um, and, and then as far as like cleanup and getting a process down, um, the way it was set up was kind of helped streamline that already. So yeah, I, I mean, we got to where we could do five in an evening as far as like taking them from halves into finished product. And what easy. makes the guys that show up to help you guys out, what makes them want to do it? Are they getting a cut of the profits? Are they taking pork home? Are they just around well, for the beer? <laughs> um, it, it's definitely a, a lot more fun when you can um, just kind of take your time at it and have a good time. And, and that, that comment was brought up, man, this is more fun when you can have a couple beers while you're doing it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, everybody ending up with some really good pork was was a pretty good motivator. I think everybody was happy in the end and, and enjoyed it while we were doing it. So speaking of pork, you and I just got back from this weekend of going out to Jason Mock's uh, field days. So he has this company called Constant Canopy. For people that don't know, I've interviewed Jason a couple of times. He's this like mad scientist farmer that runs a completely conventional operation. So he raises a, a ton of hogs, and he raises corn and soybeans, but he takes a certain percentage of his land and he tries all these experiments and you, he just gets so fired up about trying things that are different that when he invited me to come out to his field day, I was like, yeah, I think I want to go. That'll be really fun. And then a few of my friends ended up throwing their hands up and you were one of them to come with me. What were you expecting and what did you see when you got there? You know, I don't really know what I was expecting. Like I, being there was cool to see it all in person um but he posts so much you get to see it like step by step and that's the great part of it um and that's i think that's why so many of us follow him on twitter um but what i what we found there was a group of very open-minded uh, lyle said oddballs uh, was was his um Lyle Benjamin you're talking about yeah his guess of the the type of people that would be there meaning people that weren't necessarily worried about um, fitting in and, and were were more willing to try new things and and not care what people thought um, but it was a lot of people that were looking to the future looking for regenerative practices rather than sapping the nutrients and having you know soil runoff go crazy in in certain scenarios and um so it, it was a great group of people to bounce ideas off of and network with and i think that was the most valuable part of it um because yeah, i think i think i got red pilled by those people right like <laughs> because my experience of the people that are involved in organic or regenerative ag has been all these like marketing people and it's the same as like you know how you don't like the PR people from pretty much anybody's company? Like, I, I, I mean that well <laughs> intending. I am a PR person. I'm just saying like, normally there's like this inauthenticity that comes with them where they're basically saying like, hey, that guy paid me to say something shiny and nice to you about how great my thing is. And so I've never seen a, a really good distinguishing between people that are doing regenerative or corporate ag. They've always just seemed like we're trying to make ourselves win. But these people, like, they were so much more passionate about like understanding some deeper thing that they that was built as they were doing farming that, that it really struck me 
that there is a layer of agriculture that I just have not been in touch with at all. I just didn't, I didn't understand. I didn't even know was there. Yeah. And I feel like you've talked a little bit more about like the, maybe the niche or the differently thinking producers ever since the beginning of quarantine. Um, but yeah, definitely spending time with them there. You could see so much of it at once. It was, it was a pretty neat view. Yeah. And I think that like the way you were saying it, like the oddballs, like there were a lot of those people were, I met a couple of men that were either mechanical engineers or machinists or people that really understood fine grain detail. So then when they weren't trying to sell me their regenerative ag products and they were actually just telling me why they do what they do, there was a whole different dynamic between us as far as like my ability to ask them questions where the answer to that question wasn't even necessarily the question I was asking. It was like them explaining these things that I didn't even know were important. Well, that's when you get the, the best answers when you're being genuinely curious, right? Yeah, that's right. They had your chaos <laughs> there, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there was, a, there's a ton of people like that and the way, um, like, and the way Jason thinks about light and the mechanics of it, yeah, um, I can definitely see why, why there were people like that there that thought the same way. Um, and, and you're right, the people that we hear about cover crops and that kind of stuff are usually the ones trying to sell you the seed for them. So it, it, it is a nice break to, to see people doing it that are doing it because they want to make this land live on and that kind of thing. I was, yeah, there's I was, something totally different between the type of person that's, that's, that works at a large ag company that says, we'd really like you to do cover crops because we know that that will make sure that we don't get in trouble. But then you've got these other people that are like, the benefit of cover crops is you have a living carbon that's storing the things next to it so it keeps it so much looser in the soil. Like, I just never heard that. And, and maybe somebody was saying this stuff and I just wasn't listening, but it really came through to me at, at Mock's, uh, Mock's uh, event. <laughs> I would say that name wrong. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you you've got the hang of it now for the most part. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. I don't know where you want me to go with that, but yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, agree. I just it, it was an interesting <laughs> evening. We like so we go there, we see the the. So if you've never been to a field days, normally this is really common for farmers to have field days normally that are selling seeds. So for a lot of people, they bring you a plot and they show, hey, under these conditions, this corn did this way, or these soybeans grew in this way, and this, they had this resistance to these diseases. So it's not uncommon for people to go around on plot tours. But this one was like, you'd go see a plot tour and there'd be soybeans and then a 60 inch space, and then another soybean row. But in between could be hemp, it could be wheat, it could be whatever. And then he maybe sometimes had animals going down between the rows, or he was trying all different kinds of experiments. And then we get done seeing all of those. He had a couple of speeches. I gave one quick. And then we had a few hours of just people hanging out, drinking beers, doing whatever. And then there was a band. And to see a band after three and a half months of coronavirus was like shocking. And they were good. <laughs> they were really good. The Both. flying buffaloes. Yeah. And, and their, the opening act was awesome too. Yeah. Yeah, that kid. So it was just, it was bizarre. Had you, had you seen live music during coronavirus before that? No, not really. No, like I've played at home. But like, no, no, it's been a while. What instruments do you play? Uh, piano, guitar, drums, a little bit of bass. Michael's way better at bass though. Yep. And how did you pick those instruments up? 
Uh, my mom had us start playing uh, piano when we were six and then the other stuff when we were eight. And we just kept that up. And I played in bands in high school and stuff and at our church. And that that's probably where I've played the most is with church groups, mostly acoustic guitar, a little bit of drums. But um, and that's kind of why I got into the, the audio stuff. So how I met Vance. <laughs> was like what like three or four episodes in um you you posted one and I was like man like this is a little novice like these are a couple things you could do to make it better and I feel like you got really pissed off about it (laughs) at first oh no I mean it was just uh the experience of it was uh you put something out there and then somebody has pointed out things that you thought you could hear, but that somebody else kind of pointed it out maybe more clearly than even I knew. And so then you're like, you're, you're, it doesn't matter who you are. Your face is going to get red. You're going to feel sheepish. And then you're going to wonder, would it be better to pull these things down and hide or should I try and evolve it? But for me, I was so grateful that I was producing somebody something and somebody was reacting to it. Because most of the time when you ask somebody for feedback, they say, oh, that was good. And they think they're being nice, but really they're not telling you anything. They're just, you know, oh, white blank blank page is all they're saying to you. Whereas you were like, hey, these are your problems. And I was like, shit, there's somebody out there that really cares. (laughs) And it got better so fast. Like I told you, like when, when you got to your episode with Annie, I was like, wow, I actually heard all of the nuances of those voices in that one. And I wrote you about it and and it's once it got to the point where like it wasn't annoying and distracting and you captivated the emotions of the situation and the tone and the and the the verbal body language i guess um then that's the point where you were like okay now we're we're making something here yeah yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that the, the lesson out of this for me was if you find somebody that is willing to criticize you, that's a person you, you probably want to pay attention to, right? Like, the, either it, like, it's like Jordan Peterson says, there's only two kinds of people in the world that'll tell you the, the truth about you. It's the people that love you and the people that hate you. Mm-hmm. And so like, if you, if you only go around finding people that will tell you good things about yourself, you're probably not being around people that'll help you get better. But if you find somebody that tells you feedback and you find out they weren't doing that just to hurt your feelings, then you got to be like, who is this character that took, that took a chance on me being pissed at them uh, to tell me something that I needed to know? Do you do that with a lot of people? Yeah, I'm fairly disagreeable. Um, and, and, and I mean that in the, the straightforward Myers-Briggs way. Um, Michael's a little bit more agreeable than me, um, but he might just... Um, do it in also a, a more tactful way sometimes. Um, and I've, I've tried to get better at that, but yeah, I mean, especially the, the format that you talk about giving feedback in, I, I do give a lot of feedback and, um, I, I can always improve. <laughs> we can all improve with our communication skills, but I'm, I'm not afraid to say, Hey, like you could, you could be better in this way. Have you, have you ever actually, <clears throat> have you ever taken the big five personality test? No. Oh man, I would be so interested to see where you rate on the on the disagreeability scale. It's so the one that I that I did was the understanding myself, which was the Jordan Peterson uh, collaboration with the university, 
And when I got done reading that thing, did I ever tell you about this? No. When, when, so I, I read this report and I see that it says that I am very disagreeable. Like I'm out of a, a from zero to a hundred, where would you put me? Where do you think? I would put you at like probably a, I would actually put you pretty high on that, but you can convey it in a nice way. So 100 is perfectly agreeable, and that's the mother with the sleeping child, right? She does not care at all what the argument is about. She says, everybody should get along because I don't want the baby to be woken up. And then the, the zero is, you know, Doug Sammons, Rob Long, you know, they, 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 if there is a problem, they don't want to move forward until we've resolved that problem, and they don't care how much conflict it starts. Okay, so I'd put you at like a 30. No, I'm a one. I'm what? a one on the disagreeability scale. Yep. Mm -hmm. And and at first I thought that that I was like, this, this thing can't be right. You know, so Rob I'm reading is like this a thing. negative 10. Then. Yeah. Rob's a zero. Right. <laughs> and it's an asymptote. Right. So when you get out to those, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's it, what percentile are you in? And that zero, it could be miles away from that one. Right. It just means that you're at the maximum of that, that scale can, can gauge. But the, when I read this thing, the understanding myself, the disagreeability was only one thing in there. So I'm reading this thing and I'm like, nope. And I close it because I'm like, this can't be right. And then I was talking with my brother about it. And I was like, can you believe it said I was a one on the disagreeability? And he was like, oh, yeah, that's 100% right. That's exactly 100% correct. And, uh, and then you go back and read it and you realize like this document that I have here describes something deep about me that I myself didn't even know. And so it, it, it became this thing that I, I like put away in a, in a folder and hid it away. I didn't, I didn't want to show anybody it at all because I was kind of concerned about how much it knew about me. Hmm. What were your other ones? Do you remember? Oh, yeah, man. I'm, uh, I'm pretty high in openness, but not as high as I think I, I would have liked. Mm -hmm. um, my extroversion is way, way off the charts, of course. <laughs> Um, and, uh, what, what are the industriousness is pretty good, but definitely one that you're like, I'm more industrious than that. Really? I am. <laughs> yeah. But it's a, it's a, it's a great test. I, I think if you've not, if you've not done it, it's a good experience to do it for yourself. But the thing became really clear to me how valuable it was when Annie took it. And then we actually took turns talking about it. And it was, it was like a great night. It was like a Friday night date night kind of thing where, we read a little bit and then we talked about, oh, that I see that in you. And oh, that's a challenge. And oh, da, da, da. It, it was very, very good. And then it gave us a language to discuss uh, different challenges in our lives that, that, that uh, felt very comfortable. But it, I, if, I would never just leave that thing lying around in my house. <laughs> I bet I would enjoy doing that with my wife. That, yeah, that sounds like a good evening. So you told me this weekend that your wife can run circles around you about how hard she works. <laughs> that was an unusual thing. You don't, you don't typically hear people describe their spouses that way. Tell me more about that. Oh, she, she, she works pretty hard. I, usually what I say is she can sort cows better than me, which is true also. <laughs> and I've worked with a lot of cows. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I mean, we, we met because of working on pen bowls and, well, actually, we met at a cattle show in Des Moines, but then we got together after we worked on some cattle in Denver for a while and then just kept talking. And she was going to school in South Dakota at the time and decided to drive down here and hang out one weekend. And yeah, and then we got married like less than a year and a half after that. But I've known her for like 12-ish years. 
So yeah. It's been so a you, I mean, for typical U.S. you know relationships, you got married pretty young. You were twenty three, twenty four. Yeah, twenty four. Yeah, right before I turned twenty five. Did you know you would get married that young? I mean, that seems young to me to get married, but I didn't get married till I was 30. I was going to say a little, little younger than you, but no, I didn't have an idea. I'm, I mean, I've, I've always been a very much a things happen for a reason. And this is what we have to work with kind of guy. Um, and, and we're going to make the best of it. I mean, if you look at my pre like growing up, you can kind of tell why, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I didn't have a timeline on that. I was just like, when I meet the right person, and then I kind of got to a point in my life, I was like, you know, I'm just kind of tired of this dating scene, because I didn't really date anybody before that either. I talked to different people, but I was just like, yeah, this isn't this isn't working out, because I definitely need some some pretty serious aligned interests here i mean you would have to find a person that was either completely capable of being alone a lot or somebody that was like because i mean you're working all the time like it takes a certain kind of spouse that says you're working you being apart from us isn't taking away from me there are a lot of people that they get married and one of the spouses wants to work harder than the other one i don't think it's always the man i think it, it divides along another axis that's not male and female and if the other person is not on board with that, it is a lifetime of conflict. Yeah. And, and we do have days when we wish we had more time together. Um, and, and as usual, I, and actually I saw a statistic on this today, but um, it's, it's probably her a little bit more than me. Um, but also like before we had Elowen, she would come along whenever she wasn't at you work. You had your daughter is what you're saying. No one in your yeah, daughter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she would come along and help whenever she could or wanted to. Um, so that, that was pretty nice. And now um, I've been trying to be around like the, the hour before Elowen usually goes to sleep at night and, and spend some time with both of them. So it's, it's definitely a balance and, and something we're learning always learning and have to work on every day so yeah man i got that coming up how old is elowen she is seven months now so she's at a pretty fun stage right now what is it what does seven uh, months mean for a fun stage um like she's super super interactive but also like just barely not crawling yet so she you can like set her there and play with her and it, I don't know. I I like it. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I'm, I'm, we're, we're coming up. It's end of mm -hmm. August for us. And then uh, who knows? I, everybody keeps telling me that uh, sleep is all disturbed. And I have to tell you, like, that is the scariest thing on earth for me because I like, I don't sleep a lot, but I have a hardcore schedule. And mm -hmm. if that schedule is not met, I can't think. And if I can't think I'm, I'm not me. So I'm, I'm like, okay, we're going to do this. <laughs> yeah. I, um, Kendra is breastfeeding. So she got up pretty much always at night and, um, I'll, especially normally I'll be home and, um, give Ellen a bottle at night. So she's used to taking a bottle if she has to. Um, but otherwise Kendra did most of the getting up at night because 
it's just like unless I was going to go thaw some out, it was kind of a necessity. Um, but I talked to Travis a lot about this, Travis Liebig, on the weekend. Um, and yeah, because Travis went with us to uh, the Jason Mox event. Yeah, and and we we were both like worried about you. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> So it'll be good though. <laughs> well, cause Travis has been around with me since the 4:45 AM workouts. Like he knows that as long as I get to bed on time, I could do anything, mm-hmm. <laughs> but like if I can't, so changing subjects though, we have 4th of July coming up, which is a big barbecue month or barbecue time of the year. What is it that a cattle producer knows about grilling out or, you know, uh, cooking meat that just a regular person wouldn't know or wouldn't think of i i'm not that much of a a cooking connoisseur like i can handle a grill all right but i'm certainly not the best at it i i don't know like i'm pretty minimalistic on my seasoning because i'm like i made this product i want to taste it <laughs> you know yeah, we don't put anything on your stuff and i mean like nothing at all and you're the, the you mentioned it briefly earlier about the aged beef I had no idea that almost all the the meat in the grocery store, it's basically turned right around. And even if somebody had told me that, it was like, hey, we kill it and we deliver it to the grocery store, I'd have been like, hey, that's fantastic, right? Fresh. Fresh, as fresh as possible. And it just never dawned on me that hanging a cow for 14 days could radically change the flavor. Yeah, and and there's niche places that'll do even two, three, four times longer than that. Um, especially in specific primals, but, um, yeah, I mean, everything we sell is aged at the very least a week and usually 14 to 17 days. And that way it can, it can have a whole different flavor profile. The connective tissues can break down. There's this whole enzyme process that I'm not smart enough to explain. And, uh, it, it, yeah, it's just a whole different deal when you get out to the other end of it and, and a lot more um palatable tasty product so well and you can see why that would be so rare and why people would advertise that they have dry aged steaks i never knew but it's because it takes up so much space i mean you got to hang the entire carcass of a of a cow or and 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 refrigerate it and so so it's a limited amount of space but man the value of that is way underestimated I, I i don't think most people even know that that's a part of the whole beef process yeah yeah it's a big deal i mean if it, if, if it was done at scale at all the big processors they'd basically need like 12 or 14 times as much cooler space and, and that's just not economically feasible so yeah they uh they do as much as they can to to put it through as fast as they can and we're we're trying to make a very niche product that is very high quality so we need that calf to be at the optimum finish and have the right amount of aging and all that um and let's talk about that like so for people that don't know can you walk through the process of of a cow having a calf and then that calf going from being on a pasture to or whatever it is raise that calf all the way up to the point of slaughter yeah, so I mean, honestly, we're pretty conventional in how we do it. We just fine tune some stuff and and try and pick them out at their optimum finish point. Um, so we're conception to plate on 
this ring brother beef program like you can ai them or you can natural breed them with a bull um on usually on pasture but there are indoor cow calf setups so um you breed them at 14 ish months give or take and try and calve them about two years old the first time and uh, then they'll raise that calf for six months or so you wean it um, typically since we have very early spring late winter um, they're on pasture all summer and then you wean them at the end of summer and then in a normal scenario they would go to a backgrounder which is a guy that puts together all these small groups from these different uh, cow herds into larger groups that a feedlot can handle and then give them a couple rounds of vaccines um, get them on feed so they're they're eating more of a, a grain diet um, and and that takes some time to acclimate their gut to uh, a higher energy diet wait what does that mean do they get sick or they just don't eat it or how, how is that transformation process well it, it's like going from eating lettuce all the time to Snickers bars in a day like <laughs> if, if, <laughs> if you just throw them right on the the high calorie finisher because with cattle their whole life they have different nutrient requirements I mean when they're small they don't need as many calories for maintenance and then when they're big and especially if it's cold they they need a lot for just maintenance um, so your calorie intake is going up their whole life and so is your your dry matter intake of like like the the amount of feed that they take in that is dry and not water um, so yeah that all the stages are basically just ramping them up through that process um, and I don't know why they're called backgrounders like the people that get them after you wean them but I guess it's giving them uh, background that people can look at and say, oh, these guys have had a couple rounds of vaccines and they're set and ready and to. Do, do you mean what you were saying when, when you made that analogy about the Snickers bars, like salads to Snickers bar? Is that how you feel about feeding cows grain? Um, well, like to a point, it, it uh, you go from a very high fiber content to a very high um, starch content um, because cattle in the U.S. eat a lot of corn and corn products. Um, so like our hot ration by the time they are headed out would be 62, 63 megacalories per hundred um, versus when they come in, it's in the low 50s. So wait, yeah. explain those numbers to me. Mega what? I'm not a nutritionist, but megacalories, it's, uh, it's, an in it's a unit of measurement of energy just a bunch of calories. So, so it's just like, instead of saying like a millimeter or a centimeter, it's just a different, uh, like, because if you tried to convert cows onto human kilocalories, it would be so large that you'd be writing zeros for no reason. Yes. Yeah. And when do you guys decide that it's time for a cow that has been on grain? That's when you're fattening them, right? The fatted calf. Yeah. So you'd start them on like grass for the first X amount of their life and and then you finish what is that percentage though you're skipping over the interesting part like <laughs> the because i think most people when they think when they hear you say indoor feedlot they think the cow was born there and the cow had a calf and it was born there and they lived there their whole lives most people don't know that almost all the cattle in the united states are on pasture for most of their lives 
But I, even when I say that, I'm only saying that as like a vague understanding. I have no idea how many months they spend on pasture. Yeah, I mean, I could talk about that part of it for like a day, and I'm I'm not always good at getting all the details in the right spot. But yeah, most cattle spend half their lives on grass because a lot of them um, spend their whole life before they're weaned off the cow on grass, and then they're also grown um, after they're weaned on grass as, as stockers, and then um, they'll go to a feedlot setting to finish and finish on grain. And that is meant to get the uh, the fat on, like the back fat and the intermuscular fat in them, so you can have that quality ta taste experience um, at the back end. But yeah, it, they do spend at least half their lives on grass typically. Um, our cows, since it's cold, calve at some buildings that have corn stalks or straw for bedding and whatnot and then it warms up and they go out on pasture but um the vast majority of cow herds aren't in buildings they're out on wide open range land yep yeah people don't realize that a lot of the land in in places like missouri right there's people that might own 200 acres and there is no chance you're going to put that thing under the under the plow it's either too rocky mm -hmm. or too hilly or too too wooded or too whatever and so people use that land and in order to cover the taxes or to cover the rent or whatever they throw cows on that but then there's not enough land there for those cows to be uh grass-fed all the way up to a size that they could sell it to the large lockers is my understanding yeah plus there's not the calorie intake to get them to finish like i said there's they use more and more for maintenance and, and you can finish cattle on grass especially if you supplement them a little bit but to get that experience that we're we're all used to you really do have to finish them on a higher calorie intake ration so and, and that's what we do and and we talked a little bit about hitting the right finish like you can get them over fat where they're just like waddling around and and can't hardly hold themselves up but that is not ideal <laughs> and not what we're going for so um once once they get to a certain level of finish where they'll grade average to high choice to prime is when we're trying to get most of them to market. And so. for you guys running a business that's a custom feedlot, people say, hey, Ring Brothers, I want you guys to raise our cattle. So the backgrounders lined you up and how does that process work? So people are paying you to feed out their cows or the, is it like putting them in a retirement home or you got to pay them per meal or how does this work? Yeah, well, usually they don't, they don't say Ring Brothers because it's the rest of my family too, but um, <laughs> they, uh, we've got some customers that we usually work with. We, we've, um, like, we're, we'll pick up a new guy here or there, um, just kind of depends on our pen availability. But yeah, they'll call up and say, what do you got for pens? We'll say, oh, we have this 90 head pen or this 150 head pen or whatever. And they'll say, okay, I'm going to get 90 head of 800 pound steers and send them your way and then we'll charge x amount per head per day just to take care of them and, and cover like the the bedding costs and scraping pens and um delivering feed and that kind of stuff and then we'll charge another fee for the feed they eat and any meds they need vaccinations they get and that kind of stuff so and and then we get to the end of the cycle and we actually have um processors come to our farm and look at pens and bid on them there's uh um, oh you don't even take them to auction no 
No. So um, very few of the cattle in the U.S., less than 20%, are sold on this cash basis. A lot of them are just formula or grid um, where they have a contract with the large packer and they'll say, we'll give you X amount per pound of choice beef or whatever. But we have a, a show list that we say these pens are on the list and you can come bid on them. And it's usually on Tuesday, we'll have four or five cattle buyers come by and leave us bids. And then whether the cattle belong to us or to our customers, we, we tell the customer what the, the bids were and they can either take them or they can say, no, I want this much and we'll see next week if they can do better. And um, that, that's usually what we do is sell on a live basis over our scale. And, and it's, we like doing that. What so is that emphasis? You just emphasized over our scale. What does that mean? <laughs> yes. Um, so we have a certified scale at the feedlot here that we weigh them here and then we shrink them 3%. And that is the sale weight versus loading them on a truck and sending them anywhere from Pennsylvania to Nebraska to all over the place and hoping they shrink less than that and taking whatever weight they say it was. Um, we'd rather know what we're getting. And um, that's a pretty common practice when you're selling live to be able to sell over your own scale. So, And then once the processor picks up that bid, then they show up the next day with, uh, with the trailer to, to take the cows. I wish. Or... Okay. <laughs> no, um, that's kind of varied over time. Um, with all the volatility in the market, it can be anywhere from tomorrow to a month from now. Like um, during coronavirus, I think a lot of people saw in the news that a lot of packing houses were shut down. And so we went almost two months without shipping anything. Um, and, th and then we did move a, a ton of them that really needed to go. Um, but uh, yeah, I, sometimes they'll give us a date right off the bat. Sometimes they won't. And then uh, when, when they go off to the processing, how far away is it to before those, how, how far are those cows traveling by truck to get to a slaughterhouse? Yeah, it really depends on who bought them. Like last week we sent some to Pennsylvania. Um, and so Northern Illinois and Pennsylvania, it's pretty good job. It's a long drive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the closest one, I well, the closest one would be either Aurora here or Joslin, which is a Tyson plant. So and are those plants back up and running at full capacity? For the most part, like our kill numbers are back up pretty well. Yeah. What about the price of beef? Has that stabilized? I know during the beginning of coronavirus, there was a whole lot of talk about price fixing and people being very upset about things, but I haven't heard very much about it lately. Yeah, it's back down again. Um, <laughs> that I mean, that's why we really started selling direct to consumer because we were like, oh, cattle are 95 cents. Well, I don't really want to take 95 cents, so let's do something different. Um, and so we, we did get back up to, I think, $1.17 or so, but now we're back down to a dollar or lower. Um, so they, they, they were Man, saying, that's a 17% drop? Yeah, it's, it's more than, than that, but yeah. Um, yeah, it, it fluctuated pretty quick. I mean, when it was coming back down this last time, we lost 12 cents in a week and on a, on a 14, 1500 pound calf, that's a fair amount of money. I mean, three, 400 bucks a head. Yeah. Yeah. Multiplied by 
150 head in the pen. So yeah, that's, yeah. that's a lot. Yeah. What do you think? Is this just the way of the world? As long as you're selling a commodity product, you're always going to be stuck in that realm or are things going to structurally change because of coronavirus to change that pricing model? I don't know. And I'm, I'm seeing more direct to consumer than ever, but there's such a, a local processors are such a limiting factor in that, right? There's only so many butchers around. It's kind of a lost art. And that's kind of why we've been trying to get into it more um, and, and why we want to actually open up a, a custom kill deal. But that's going to be quite a while in, in the making. Um, but uh, I, I do think we're going to have a lot of volatility for a long time. I'm not, again, I'm not like a markets guy either, really. There's plenty of people I know that are a lot better at that than me. Um, but we have had a lot of black swan events that have really made some prices swing even before coronavirus. There was a plant in Holcomb, Kansas that caught on fire last August and the market tanked then too. And both times box beef went up and live cattle went down. And actually after the Holcomb fire, we killed like 5,000 cattle more the next week. And, and to give you kind of an idea of scale, we kill about 650,000 cattle in the U.S. every week. Um, so the fact that they did 5,000 more with this pretty good sized plant down, they were lowering the live bid because they were like, oh, we aren't going to have enough shackle space. But then they killed more and we were like, oh, cool guys. Thanks for that. And then they just made a bunch on, on uh, box beef because it went up. Yeah, it seems like the thing that was happening with cattle producers is like something that so many people around the world face anytime there's a consolidation. I mean, when you limit the number, when the number of people that are bidding on your things goes down below some certain threshold, it makes it so you don't have those hidden pressures to, to, to push on you. And I mean, it's unlikely to me that we will see a ton more slaughter facilities come up. You're not going to see a group of people. It would be very unlikely for a group of investors to say, let's go put together a, what, what does it cost? Uh, 250 million to build a, a large-scale processing maybe more than that yeah i mean it depends on how big you want to build it but i mean what was it 2014 i'm probably wrong on that they closed one down because we they were having to pay a lot for them and then they consolidated shackle space and now they get to you know pay the price they want but 80 percent of the meat is processed by what is it four different processors right now so, I mean, that's, that's pretty common conversation in the cattle world. Yeah. But this is what makes my, uh, my Peter Thiel paradox idea so brilliant is that if Missouri buys East St. Louis, I believe there is a great deal of packing plants that used to be there. We just bring them back online. We can, uh, we can rent out the space to private producers. I, it's, this is, this is going to happen, man. Probably a little outdated. But <laughs> <laughs> how much could cattle processing change over the last 30 years? Oh, a lot. <laughs> but I, I have heard that idea before. And I mean, they'd probably be all, all about it. Who wants to be paying Illinois taxes? So we've actually been seeing a lot of each other lately because not only did we go to Jason Mock's Constant Canopy event, but we also had the book club with the Thomas Jefferson Bible this week. What did you think of that book? What were you, what did you go in expecting and what did it seem like? Well, I didn't know anything about it before it was suggested. And as usual, Lyle had a great book suggestion. Um, Lyle Benjamin. Lyle Benjamin. Um, 
it was a very dense read and it was a very good read. I I really wasn't sure how the the conversation was going to go because like there wasn't any character development. I mean, there is, but it's basically like Jesus at 12 years old and then at 30 or whatever and then he's just that age roughly until the end of the book. So for people that don't know, the Thomas Jefferson Bible was Jefferson's attempt to simplify the Bible. I went in thinking he was trying to take all the mysticism out or all the religious aspects of it. But when you go and read it, that's not it at all. Like what he does is he distills it down to when is the Bible actually talking about Jesus and what he said. And then they, instead of having any of the lineages in there or the complicated cities or how, who was in power, it was just as, as little of that information as you could. So you're left with this distilled compilation of hey when he was teaching to the to the people when he was 12 years old bang 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 these were the parables that he told and these were the stories that that he talked about or the the philosophies that he had and then they moved to the next thing and he's just rattling it out and the craziest thing that you capture at least that i took away from it was i didn't realize that the way the bible had cataloged this teaching really makes ton of sense like as you listen to the sermon that he's giving, you're like, oh, now I see how those things all flow together in a way that I never did when I was reading the Bible. Yeah, yeah. And and it just goes so fast, too, in the way Jefferson did it because he did cut out so much. But yeah, just focusing on basically the moral teachings of Jesus is is um, what I got out of the point of it, I guess. Um and it's very valuable. I mean, it's a lot of common sense stuff, but there was also plenty of stuff that was like, whoa, I had never really thought about it that way. Um, so I, I really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed every book so far I've been able to participate with, with the book club. Well, the book club this month like got great because all of a sudden, because of the Articulate Ventures Network, now there were a whole bunch of people that were in the book club. So we had a guy from Nova Scotia who clearly said like, you know, I'm, I've left a, a religious tradition. It's not my thing. And, uh, and, he, and it was his first Zoom call he'd ever done before. So this is a guy that's not like high on technology or anything. And I thought we would have him run into, you know, there's quite a bit of people from the ag world and, you know, that, that are devout Christians. I thought those two things were going to smash into each other. And I was like, how do you moderate it if people get in a disagreement? But instead, the opposite thing happened. It was like, everybody was able to offer a different vantage point of what they thought and no one was offended by anybody else's. In fact, I found myself being like, damn, I never would have thought of that. Well, I think you've kind of curated a group of people that um, are not only open-minded, but um, don't take offense to people disagreeing with them. You're like, okay, you have an idea and I'm going to think about your idea too because maybe I can learn from it. So I, I feel like that's kind of why it's the vibe there. Um, but yeah, having everybody that's joined Articulate Ventures join in on that has been great. And I've really enjoyed every book club we've done. And um, I, I don't think you might've suggested it as much, but I think Jekyll and Hyde has been my favorite one so far that we've read. Really? Yeah, I really liked that book. Wow, why? Man, I would say that's the only book that I was like, well, didn't I make the right decision choosing that one? That didn't seem like a good choice. I feel like I was the one with the weird perspectives on that one. Like, Yeah, that's definitely right. 100% <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, you were like, man, it, it feels like they're referencing addiction. And I was like, 
no because this and that's why i got that vibe and you were like oh well i mean that's another way to put it put it so but yeah i i mean i i think we had a lot of different ideas on that one but i yeah i was probably the out there one on that that book i think uh the one that was my favorite so far i think it's got to be dante's inferno and that was the first one we did and i think it was because it's that was the beginning of the book club and you were first getting the experience of like this is hard but I've got other people around me that are reading it too and they're struggling and you can ask people what they're thinking. And it felt so good to get done with a book that you struggled with. And not that I didn't like it. Like, it wasn't like I was like, oh God, I got to read Dante's Inferno again. It was just like, okay, let's, let's get ready. It's going to take some time. I got to have patience and I'm going to read this. But it felt like accomplishing something. And I feel like I internalized that book in a way that I hadn't internalized a book in a long time before that. Yeah, I really enjoyed that one too. And I kind of jumped into the book club probably because of that one and that it was old. And I I really, I joined because I wanted to get into reading like classic timeless books and being able to do it with a group of people was very um, attractive to me. So I, yeah, I did the audio version of, of Inferno and really enjoyed it. The, I think the weirdest thing about the book club is that it's been so parallel to what's going on in the world. And the oh, yeah. whole goal of the, of the book club has been, let's find Lindy books. Let's find books that have, that have been around long enough that there's some meaning distilled in there that you can't necessarily just put your finger on and be like, oh, if you just understand this sentence, you understand the concept. It's that it takes a while for the idea to mature, but that those books have la- stood the test of time. So Dante's Inferno. I think the the most recent book we've probably read was Logan's Run, but even that yeah. felt kind of timeless in a way. Yeah, and I didn't I didn't uh, join in on that one. I was just kind of in an odd spot and I couldn't get into it. Um, but I I think the least Lindy one we've done was Naked Sun, but it still fit the timeline perfectly. Yeah, Naked Sun being all about, you know, people being afraid, space people being afraid to come in contact with other human beings because they were so afraid of germs. Mm -hmm. And this was right as coronavirus was starting. So it was like, how could people only want to see each other over video chat? And then all of a sudden, everybody's video chatting in the entire world. It was creepy. Yeah, and it's an Asimov book. So it was a great read, too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So have you read this month's book, 1984, before? I hadn't, no. So when that one popped up, I was like, man, I've kind of wanted to read that one anyway. So that's why I was definitely in that boat on that. This is a barn burner. This is one of those ones that well, I remember when I read it in high school, and I, I know there's, I am really looking forward to going back and refreshing my memory, that it got into my dreams. It got into the, like the the space in your mind where you're you like have the weirdest dreams anyway though <laughs> i don't think i have weirder dreams than anybody else i no? think that i spent no i think i spent a couple of like about a year and a half where i became very very dedicated to write them down mm. and that gave me a whole different perspective on what i do with my time when i wake up in the morning so one of the reasons that i'm so aware of of my dreams is that I have a habit, if I, if I have one, I write it down mm-hmm. and I try really hard if I've had a dream to not pick up my phone in the morning and then go and get a cup of coffee and drink it and pet my dog and then get ready for running or lifting or whatever I'm going to do. And during that time, I stretch out the dream and I think about it. I, I, I think in a lot of ways I'm, I'm playing with it. So it's probably not the exact dream I had while I was asleep, but I'm still in this kind of 
unawake state. And, and that's when I learned probably the most about myself. That's why I have trouble telling when people are like, Oh, what should my journal entry be? I'm like, I don't know. Mine comes to me in my dreams. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's just cause you talk about it more that, that I say that. Well, I mean, I would challenge anybody to, to go for two weeks and say every morning when I wake up, even if I don't have a dream, I'm going to open up instead of checking my phone, I'm going to write something down about what sleeping was like. And eventually it comes to you and then they become clearer and clearer and clearer and clearer. Hmm. Okay. So man, we did, we started this late uh, because of my schedule. So I got to get going because I'm going to fall asleep before too long. But thank you, Joseph Ring, for coming on the podcast. You and your brother did something for me and my family that I will never forget for my entire life. That was a, it was a pivotal time. Uh, we wanted to fill up a freezer. We were worried about the future. And our two friends, Michael and Joseph, you know, made it happen. Your brother showed up and helped me get it all squared away. And it was something that really meant a lot to me. And now I understand uh, the the local producer in a whole different way. So you've changed my outlook and the trajectory of of where my mind was headed, and I'm deeply grateful for it, man. Well, I'm 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 pretty appreciative for like all of the things you've done for us too. So <laughs> yeah, being able to bounce ideas off of you is has been a great experience, and and like you were the first Ring Brother Beef purchase. So. <laughs> Oh man, I will proudly take that. Dude. I will <laughs> proudly take that. Well, um, just uh, today, Ben and I were talking that we are going to open up the Articulate Ventures Network. So we're no longer going to do invitations. So if anybody wants to join, all you have to do is just go to articulate.ventures. And that's where Joseph and I hang out. So I um, hope, hope you guys join us, join our Will Pod. It's a pretty interesting crew. It's definitely very valuable. And we have some great conversations there even in the very small group it's been so far in the beta deal. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a little nervous, you know, we're going from 30 to however many people join, but you know, so far every ounce of that growth, every person that's come in has added something new and interesting and it's been great. Yeah. And I think it'll attract some, some pretty valuable input and, and people that are, um, looking for progressive conversation. And I don't mean that politically, just, good conversation and and positive outcomes yeah this morning there was a whole thing on what do you do if you're uh, awakened with a terrible thought and how do you mm -hmm. go back to bed and what do you do with it and it was really interesting to see who responded these are these are not like um uh, mushy people they're <laughs> like super emotional people and they were in there talking about what they do and what they think and i love it i love it anyway let's get out of here thank you so much joseph and we'll talk to you later yeah thanks <laughs>